The National Weather Service has issued an alert for your area. Please check your local weather and media services for more information. The costliest natural disaster in U.S. history struck New Orleans. It started as a tropical depression over the Bahamas, and it caused over 1,800 deaths and $125 billion in damage, particularly in New Orleans and the surrounding areas. It was, at the time, the costliest tropical cyclone on record. It is now tied with 2017's Hurricane Harvey. The storm was the 12th tropical cyclone of the 5th hurricane and the 3rd major hurricane of the 2005 Atlantic hurricane season, as well as the 4th most intense Atlantic hurricane on record to make landfall in the contiguous U.S. It is one of the most legendary names in the in the Cajun area, in the areas of New Orleans. One of the most famous names that everyone knows. You go everywhere else in the world, go somewhere else in the world and say names. Go to Paris and say Charles de Gaulle. Go to Rome and say any of the Caesars, Julius or Octavius. This is on that level. Everyone knows the name Katrina. It originated on August 23, 2005 as a tropical depression from the merger of a tropical wave and the remnants of of a tropical depression 10. Early the following day, The depression intensified into a tropical storm as it headed generally westward toward Florida, strengthening into a hurricane two hours before making landfall at at Hallandale Beach on August 25th. After briefly weakening into a tropical storm, it gained strength over southern Florida. Katrina reemerged into the Gulf of Mexico on August 4 on August 26th and began to rapidly intensify. The storm strengthened into a category 5 hurricane over the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico before weakening into a category 3 at its second landfall on August 29th over southeast Louisiana and Mississippi. When it struck, it was a Category 5. That is all kinds of levels of severe. And this is just to tell you the story of what it did. And not necessarily to relive it, but to, to learn how safety has improved. And to how things have come involved along since then. Flooding 
caused largely as a result of fatal engineering flaws in the flood protection system known as levees around the city of New Orleans, precipitated most of the loss of the lives. Eventually, 80% of the city, as well as large tracts of neighboring parishes, were inundated with, with water for weeks. The flooding also destroyed most of New Orleans' transportation and communication facilities, leaving tens of thousands of people who had not evacuated the city prior to landfall stranded with little access to food, shelter, or other basic necessities. The scale of the disaster in New Orleans provoked massive national and international response efforts, federal, local, and private rescue operations, evacuated displaced people out of the city over the following weeks. Multiple investigations in the aftermath of the storm concluded that US Ar- the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which had designed and built the region's levees decades earlier, was responsible for the failure of the flood control systems, though federal courts later ruled that the Corps could not be held financially liable because of the sovereign immunity in the Flood Control Act of 1928. There are... It's a lot of stories of what went on during Katrina. It's just... Just so powerful. And so touching. And I'll get on to one of that in a bit. Um, It's the tale of what what I've read. And what I've been told. And done through my notes and research have been called the Romeo and Juliet of the South. And it's interesting. A lot of this fact, facts about Katrina is very, very interesting. And as you've just heard me read, it formed as a tropical depression as Tropical Depression 12 over the southeastern Bahamas on August 23, 2005, as a result of the merger of a tropical wave and the remnants of a tropical depression 10 four days earlier. The storm was strengthened into into Tropical Storm Katrina on the morning of August 24th. Then, the tropical storm moved towards Florida and became a hurricane only two hours before making landfall between Hallandale Beach and Aventura on the morning of August 25th. The storm weakened over land, but it regained hurricane status about one hour after entering the Gulf of Mexico and it continues strengthening over open waters. On August 27th, the storm reached Category 3 intensity in the Saffir-Simpson hurricane wind scale, becoming the third major hurricane of the season. An eyewall replacement cycle disrupted the the intensification, but caused the storm to nearly double in size. Thereafter, Katrina rapidly intensified over unusually warm waters in the loop current from a Category 3 hurricane to a Category 5 hurricane in just 9 hours. That is beyond, beyond holy crud. Like, holy crud, can you see, can we even prepare or comprehend what is happening? After attaining Category 5 hurricane status on the morning of August 28th, Katrina reached its peak strength at at 1,800 
UTC. No definition of what UTC is. My notes didn't clear that up either. I just dropped that down really quickly. With maximum sustained winds of 175 miles per hour and a minimum central pressure of 902 M bars, the pressure measurement made Katrina the the fifth the fifth most intense Atlantic hurricane on record at the time, only to be surpassed by hurricanes Rita and Wilma later in the season. It was also the strongest hurricane ever recorded in the Gulf of Mexico at the time, before Rita broke the record. The hurricane subsequently weakened due to another eyewall replacement cycle, and Katrina made its second landfall at 11.10 on August 29th, as a Category 3 hurricane with sustained winds of 125 mile per hour, miles per hour near Barras Triumph, Louisiana. At landfall, hurricane force winds extended outward 120 miles from the center and the storm's central pressure was 920 M- or millibars, 920 bar millibars. After moving over southeastern Louisiana and Breton Sound, it made its third and final landfall near the Louisiana-Mississippi border with 120 mile per hour sustained winds, still at Category 3. Katrina maintained strength well into Mississippi, finally losing hurricane strength more than 150 miles inland near Meridian, Mississippi. It was downgraded to a tropical depression near Clarksville, Tennessee. Its remnants were absorbed by a cold front in the eastern Great Lakes region on August 31st. The resulting extratropical storm moved rapidly to the northeast and affected eastern Canada. It started, now get that, wrap your mind around that if you can. If you can grasp how severe this storm was, it started over the Bahamas, spun over Florida, gained extreme strength and extreme power from the abnormal heat and the abnormal warmth in the Gulf of Mexico, spun up through Louisiana, completely wrecked and demolished New Orleans, overflowed the levees everywhere, moved up into the U.S., in, in through Texas, in through Tennessee, and actually made in, and actually foundered and floundered in eastern Canada. It went that far up. That is like what? It makes you go, what? How does how does this happen? And it's it. How does this? How does this even? How, do, how can anyone even comprehend this? And on the it, it, and this is a little bit from, and a lot of this is going to be some some information from the research that I've done, and a lot of information from one of my producers, who herself actually works for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and she's actually a scientist for NOAA. And a lot of this is from her notes. And mine. On the afternoon of August 26th, the National Hurricane Center, which is affiliated and part of NOAA, realized that Katrina had yet to make a turn towards toward the Florida Panhandle 
and ended up revising the predicted track of the storm from the Panhandle to the Mississippi coast. National Weather Service's New Orleans Baton Rouge office issued a vividly worded bulletin on August 28th, predicting that the area would be uninhabitable for weeks after devastating damage caused by Katrina, which, at the time, rivaled the intensity of Hurricane Camille. During video conferences involving the President later that day, on August 29th, NHC National Hurricane Center, NHC Director Max Mayfield expressed concern that Katrina might push its storm surge over the city's levees and flood walls. In one conference, he stated, I do not think anyone can tell you with confidence right now whether the levees will be topped or not, but that's obviously a very, very great concern. And it was. They were topped. Additionally, the National Hurricane Center issued many tropical cyclone warnings and watches throughout the duration of Katrina. It, the, the damage and the devastation of what, it, of what it did is, I can't even, that's why I keep saying it, I can't even comprehend it. In Louisiana, the state's hurricane evacuation plan calls for local governments in areas along and near the coast to evacuate, evacuate in three phases, starting with the immediate coast 50 hours before the start of, a tropical, of tropical storm force winds. Persons in areas designated Phase 2 begin evacuating 40 hours before the onset of tropical storm winds. And those in Phase 3, including New Orleans, evacuate 30 hours before the start of such winds. Many private caregiving facilities that relied on bus companies and ambulance services were, were unable to evacuate their charges, their patients, because they waited too long. Louisiana's Emergency Operations Plan Supplement calls for the use of school and other public buses in evacuation needs. Although buses that later flooded were, uh, were available to transport those dependent upon public transportation, not enough bus drivers were available to drive them as, as then... Louisiana Governor Blanco did not sign an emergency waiver to allow any licensed driver to transport evacuees on school buses. By August 26th, the possibility of unprecedented cataclysm was already being considered. Many of the computer models had shifted from the potential path of Katrina, 150 miles westward from the Florida Panhandle, putting the city of New Orleans directly in the dead center of their track possibilities. The chance of a direct hit were forecasted at 17%, with a strike possibility, probability rising to 29% by August 28th. This scenario was considered a potential catastrophe because some parts of New Orleans and the metro area are below sea level. That's right below sea level. Since the storm surge produced by the hurricane's right front quadrant, containing the strongest winds, was forecast to be 28 feet, while the levees offered protection to 23 feet. 
Emergency management officials in New Orleans feared that the storm surge could over could go over the tops of, of the levees protecting the city, causing severe, major flooding. At a news conference at 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on August 28th, shortly after Katrina was upgraded to a Category 5 storm, New Orleans Mayor Ray Nagin ordered the first ever mandatory evacuation of the city, calling Katrina a storm, calling Katrina a storm that most of us have long feared. I can only, I can't even fathom. It must have seemed like the apocalypse, like the apocalypse was coming and was dawning. It must have just scared the crud out of just about everyone. The city government also established several refugees of last resort. Ref, refugees established several refuges of last resort for citizens who could not leave the city, including the massive Louisiana Superdome, which sheltered approximately 26,000 people and provided them with food and water for several days as the storm came ashore. Some estimates claimed that 80% of the 1.3 million residents of the greater New Orleans metropolitan area evacuated, leaving behind substantially fewer people than remained in the city during the Hurricane Ivan evacuation. On August 29, 2005, Katrina's storm surge caused 53 breaches to various flood protection structures in and around the greater New Orleans area, submerging 80% of the city. That is a huge number. And New Orleans survives. And it flusters and it succeeds. Not flusters. And it succeeds beyond anything anyone could possibly imagine. Do you know how many cities that if that happened to it would be decimated? Be totally leveled and decimated. This is to stand to the credit of the people of New Orleans and and the culture that it stands to it's it's it just stands to you can't even fathom it. It stands to the the, the measure of their character and their greatness. And the death toll from Katrina is uncertain, with reports reports differing by hundred differing by hundreds. According to the National Hurricane Center, 1,836 fatalities can be attributed to the storm. One in Kentucky, two each in Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio, 14 in Florida, 238 in Mississippi and 1,577 in Louisiana. However, 135 people remain categorized as missing in Louisiana, and many of the deaths are indirect, but, is, but it is almost impossible to determine the exact cause of some of the fatalities. A 2008 report by the Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness Journal indicates that 966 deaths can be directly attributed to the storm in Louisiana, including out-of-state evacuees, and another 20 indirectly due to a certain causes of death, with 454 evacuees 
and upward of 1,440 is noticed in the paper. A follow-up study of the Louisiana Department of Health and Hospitals determined that the storm was directly responsible for 1,170 fatalities in Louisiana. Federal disaster declarations covered 90,000 square miles of the United States, an area almost as large as the UK. The hurricane left an estimated 3 million people without electricity. There are stories of, of people who this, this storm completely devastated. And one of the things I want to touch on as briefly as I can, because I, I want to talk about a story, what I've called the Romeo and Juliet of the South. And a lot of people don't know their names and don't know who they are, but I do. And I do know a lot about them because I've researched them a lot. And, and this is what I can briefly gather and what I can briefly tell you about the story of Zach Bowen and Addie Hall. On October 17, 2006, around 8 p.m., New Orleans police received a disturbing call from the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel. A man's body was on the roof of the parking garage. Upon arriving and seeing a severely mangled body, it was clear the man had died on upon, upon impact. Unsure if they had a murder, suicide, or tragic accident on their hands, the investigators began by searching the body for the man's ID. In his back pocket, they found a note reading, in part, this is not an ac- this is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol to 826 North Rampart, you'll find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie, in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, along with full documentation on the both of us and a full signed confession from myself, Zach Bowen. Police rushed to the address, a small apartment above the Voodoo Spiritual spiritual Temple. Once inside, they were confronted by something out of a horror movie. Despite the warm October weather, the apartment was cold, the the air conditioning was set on 60, the walls were spray-painted with haunting messages of regret and pain, such as Zach's own words, I am a failure, and instructions to call Zach's ex-wife and tell her he loved her. One message on the wall directed them to the stove. There, in a pot, on one of the burners, was a human head, burned beyond recognition. In another pot were hands and feet. Inside the oven, in a large roasting pan, were arms and legs, also burnt. Investigators noticed that that there appeared to be seasoning on the limbs. On the counter, next to the stove, were cut up potatoes and carrots. Inside the refrigerator, in a large plastic bag, they found a torso. But 
as horrifying as these discoveries were, police would soon find even more disturbing evidence in Addie Hall's journal. The, couple, the couple's friends were shocked when they heard the news. They said the couple had, a, had been unhappy for a while. They constantly argued. No one could have predicted such a gruesome ending for either of them. Bowen and Hall had met when they were both bartenders in the French Quarter. Bowen, a tall, good-looking man, was known as somewhat of a charmer. And Addie was a free-spirited artistic type who wrote poetry and taught dance classes. They fell in love during Hurricane Katrina, when Hal, when Hall let Bowen stay with her to ride out the storm. Strangely, the two seemed in their element during the weeks after the hurricane, without electricity, trading drinks for food, and no jobs or bills to worry about. It was more like an extended camping trip than a disaster. Hall became known for flashing her boobs at police, and the two bartenders would serve drinks to passers-by. Their tale of love and colorful survivalism attracted many in the media, and the couple were even featured in the New York Times. But the party had to end sometime, and the friends said the, re- said the return to the real life put a lot of strain on the two people who both had issues. Addie, according to her friends, had been molested while she was young, and, like many abuse, abuse victims, went on to have a string of abusive relationships as an adult. Some said she was bipolar, and it's likely she suffered from PTSD from being molested. She was known to be a heavy drinker, and some said she could be a mean drunk. Bowen, as well, had his issues. He had served as a military police officer in Kosovo and Iraq, including time in Abu Ghraib. One experience in particular that friends said messed him up was what the most messed him up the most was when a girl he had befriended in Iraq was killed, along with her whole family, when her family shop was was bombed. Like so many who served in those wars, Zach returned home depressed and suffering from PTSD. Despite earning a NATO medal and the Presidential Unit Citation for his service, plus his commanding officer's recommendation that he receive, that he receive an honorable discharge, he was released with only a general discharge. That meant that while he qualified for VA benefits, he couldn't get GI Bill education benefits. This left Bowen very bitter and very, very angry. At some point, the two troubled heavy drinkers also started doing, doing cocaine on the regular. The relationship deteriorated to the point that they were arguing constantly, and Zach's friends said that he often complained about Addie. Then, on October 4th, the day before the murder, Addie went to their landlord to have Bowen taken off the lease. He had cheated on her, she said. 
so she was kicking him out. The landlord didn't comply, but instead told her to go home and work it out with Zack. This was the last time anyone saw Addie alive. In the eight-page confession letter Bowen wrote in Hall's journal, he described in graphic detail what happened next. I killed her at 1 a.m. Thursday, the 5th of October, he wrote. Very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. He... PTSD made him do this. And you can say whatever you want about people suffering from PTSD and what it does to them. I don't completely understand it, but I know it has extreme, severe traumatic effects on people. And he, he, when he has gone on to describe what happened. And he describes it in very, very in-depth. And he... It, there's very much it's very much the impression is given that they were seeking in each other something that they thought that they couldn't get in their own lives something that that was that was out of their reach and they wanted to instead not be not be on their own and not be horrified and on their own they wanted to be with someone and they wanted to be, to, they wanted to be, I guess the only way to describe it is that they wanted to be with someone. And everyone can understand that, wanting companionship. And everyone can understand that. And the degree to which we handle it is different. And this is not a defense. This is not a defense or a condone. It's absolutely not a condonement. But this is not a defense of anything that Zach did. Or anything that Addie did. It's just kind of letting everyone know about their story and trying to keep their their lives a lesson for what we can learn going forward and trying to make the world safe and trying to use them and use their lives and use their legacy as a lesson going forward. He 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 did a lot after he after he killed her he, it was said that he violated her several times before he passed out next to her. And the next morning he got up and went to work. Um, it's just, there's, there's a lot to it. And we kind of look at it and we wonder what we can learn from it. And murder is the wrong thing to do. Murder is evil and it's not... It's not condoning. I'm not condoning any of it from anyone. But PTSD can do a lot to people. It, and I understand that Zach and Addie had PTSD. And it did a lot. It did, it did a heck of a number on them. And it's not a vindication. It's not a condonement of anything that they did. It's certainly not that. But it's kind of, it's just kind of, I, I, I see and I get how, how tortured they were. And it explains their torture and explains what they, what they went through and how they suffered. And it's just, 
you know, learn a little bit from them and use their lives to, to change yours and to adapt and change yours going forward. So thank you all for hanging in there. Thank you all for listening. Stick around for a little bit more on the end here. Want to check out the best podcast and best YouTube channel out there? True, true friends of this podcast? Check out Fantastic Cruising over on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcasting devices and services. Give them a five-star review. Head on over to YouTube. Look up Fantastic Studios. Give them a five-star review and give them comments. They'll love that to death. They are the greatest podcast out there. Give them a shout-out. go to Vegas, visit the best places all around the Strip and all around downtown, all around the surrounding areas, check out the best vlogs for Vegas anywhere on YouTube at Brar Frederick over on YouTube. B-R-O-R Frederick, F-R-E-D-R-I-K over on YouTube. Go over to Brar Frederick. Subscribe to his channel. Click that bell icon. Click that Hit those those like those like up thumbs. Give give Brar a follow. Give Brar a look. You'll really love what you're seeing. He's an awesome streamer, the best Vegas streamer, and the best thing to watch while you're in Vegas before you go to Vegas, just to experience Vegas as a whole. Please join me in supporting and giving to the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project. When you donate to the Pride Foundation, you join thousands of supporters building a better, safer, more equitable world for LGBTQIA people and their families. Every gift, whether $1 or $1,000, makes an impact for real people and ripples outward into our communities. There are many different ways to join and help the fight. Also go on to their websites for the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project and donate and help in any way possible. The Trevor Project offers support and help for LGBTQIA youth all over the country and all over the world. Please show them some love and give them some support.